From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod, a show about Black culture from Blackness's biggest fans. I'm Brittany Luce. And I'm Eric Eddings. If you know me, you know I watch an obscene amount of TV. I watch and generally enjoy most shows. And my absolute favorite show on TV right now is NBC's The Good Place. It's set in the afterlife, which looks like a very clean, affluent, small town. It was designed by this architect named Michael, who's sort of in charge of the place. And the show follows the story of four people who've died and are now set to spend eternity together in The Good Place. There's Tahani, the bougie British socialite. I haven't been this upset since my good friend Taylor was rudely upstaged by my other friend Kanye, who was defending my best friend, Beyonce. Jason, the lovably dim-witted dancer. You're so smart. Every day you teach me something new about art and history and, and why I shouldn't eat everything that smells good. Because sometimes it's candles. Eleanor, who's selfish, but deep down, she has her reasons. Hi there. Do you have a second to talk about the environment? Do you have a second to eat my farts? And my favorite character, Chidi Anagonye. He's played by actor William Jackson Harper. Chidi's a Nigerian man who's obsessed with doing the right thing, to the point that he struggles to do anything. I'm sorry. I don't think I can help you. I just don't like being dishonest, and I can't advise you to be dishonest either. Come on! I'm just asking you to fudge a little bit. You must have told a few white lies in your life. I mean, what was your job? I was a professor of ethics and moral philosophy. Motherforker! I'm getting a stomachache. I'm in a perfect utopia, and I'm, I have a stomachache. Decision-related stress to the point of gastric distress? Oh boy, I can relate. But I'm not here to talk about my stomach issues today. Today on the show, I want to talk about The Good Place and Chidi. Chidi's character feels important because of who he is and where he is. Chidi is Black and a whole flawed person in the afterlife. And that, my friends, is rare. Most shows and movies that deal with the great beyond repeat the same character stereotypes as here on Earth. Black women like Roxy from Dead Like Me or Tess from Touched by an Angel call to mind sassy Black women. We've never heard that before. But mostly, we're just magical Negroes, supporting characters, often with mystical powers, whose only real purpose is to advise or help some white character in crisis. And that's if we manage to be depicted in the afterlife at all. I guess one of my favorite afterlife movies ever is Beetlejuice, and I'm trying to think of black characters in that, and I can't seem to recall any. Huh. Except for, like, there's that head shrinker. There's that, yeah. like, voodoo head shrinker at the end that I, I think is black. I'm not 100% sure. That's Cord Jefferson, fellow black man and writer on The Good Place. I've never seen Touched by an Angel. Was Ghost Dad? Was Bill Cosby right. dead in Ghost Dad? <laughs> Was he dead? Was he dead? He was dead in that, right? He was kind of like undead. He dies, but his ghost comes back because he maybe is also in a coma at some point. I saw that when I was really, really young, but that's the only one that I can really remember. I talked to Cord to find out why Chidi and the way The Good Place talks about race feels so different than what came before. But before we got into that, I had some questions about where The Good Place fits and what's going on with TV right now. 
recently there have been a lot of shows tackling issues related to kind of like what happens after we die. Yeah, that's uh, Mike Schur, the creator, has a joke that he he calls them the uh, the white dude from Harvard afterlife shows because I think there's like four of them now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got like uh, you got the Good Place. You got yeah. uh, I think it was like Miracle Worker. It just came out. Miracle Worker just came out forever. Yeah. Why do you think, like, as a culture, we're thinking so much about the afterlife? There was this period of time in culture when a lot of television felt incredibly grounded. There was that run of, you know, Louis and Girls. Yeah. Those sort of hyper-realistic dramedies that were everywhere. The zeitgeist was, you know, we were in a period of relative calm. Obama yeah. was president. Felt like we had an adult at the wheel of the uh, country and the world. So everybody was willing to get a little bit darker and more dramatic with their comedy. And now things feel a lot more chaotic in the world. Yeah. We're dealing with uh, the effects of climate change. People are grappling with the idea that the world may not be around yeah. in 100 years. People are grappling with the idea that we're on the nuclear precipice and that there's potential wars with with Russia or North Korea or, or, or any number of other countries on the horizon. So I think that Everybody started to get really high concept, and so everybody's getting zanier and wackier. And then on top of that, people are also thinking about death more. And I think that as people start to think about death more, one of the immediate things you start to think about is is the afterlife. It's what happened next. So basically, the world has gone to shit. So, you know, we're yeah, trying to figure exactly. out what happens exactly. after. <laughs> this is actually this is the brightest conversation I've had all day, believe it or not. This is— a <laughs> <laughs> That's that's very grim. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is my type of talk, but uh, but you write for. To be honest, what is was my favorite show on television? Thank you. You write for The Good Place. Yep. Even though it was my favorite show, when I'm talking to people about it, I often find it is remarkably hard to describe the plot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. So I want to take this opportunity to defer to you. And we're going to talk about the show in depth, so you can give some spoilers. I mean, it's been on for three seasons. Spoilers, it's over at this point. Yeah, you've had your chance. What is The Good Place about? I mean, the plot at this point is, uh, it's going to sound insane, but <laughs> to summarize, the plot is that four people died and went to heaven. One of them, the main character... Eleanor particularly felt like she didn't belong in heaven. She was an imposter. She was shared a name with somebody whose life she seemed to be living in, but she knew that she didn't live that same life down on earth. So she realized that she had somehow taken somebody's spot in the good place. So she asked for help from Chidi Anagonye, who is a moral philosopher. He was a professor down on earth. He lived a pretty righteous life. He's racked with indecisiveness, but beyond that, he's sort of a pretty good guy. So Chidi sought to help Eleanor become a better person so that she could actually stay in the good place and live there in sort of internal pleasure with the rest of them. But things kept going wrong and things were weird. And then you get to the end of the first season and you find out that actually Eleanor, Chidi, and the two other main characters, Jason and Tahani, are all in the bad place. And they're all part of this literally evil experiment by Ted Danson's character, Michael, who's a bad place architect who is seeking new ways to torture human <laughs> beings. 
that's a lot more succinct than I can get it. (laughs) (laughs) That was just season one. There's two more seasons to go. But as core, I think the good place is about human beings searching for answers to the most basic and eternal questions that that confront us, uh, which are, you know, how to be good in this life. What is this life all about? What do we owe to one another as human beings in this life? Yeah. As you mentioned, there are these four characters in the good place, or at least what they think is the good place. Mm -hmm. And Chidi is this Nigerian-born Senegalese man who is a professor of ethics and moral philosophy. You got that right. That's that's impressive. Nigerian-born, a lot of people forget about. Feels very important on this show. We get that part right. Absolutely. (laughs) Chidi's also a very kind and and warm-hearted person who has this one fatal flaw, which is that he is incredibly indecisive and that he cannot ever make a quick decision. Even the basic things like, what do you want for breakfast? What do, what pants are you going to wear today? Are, are, are things that he struggles with. And so, of course, the more major issues, you know, whether he wants to get married, whether uh, he should lie to a friend, those also keep him awake at night, literally. That is what ended up sending Chidi to the bad place is that his indecisiveness ended up hurting a lot of the people who were very close to him in his time on Earth. Yeah, and the plot frequently places him in these situations where his reactions to pressure or his his anxiety is on like full display. There's actually one episode in particular I want to bring up, which is one of my favorite episodes of the show, The Trolley Problem. Yeah, The Trolley Problem is a classic philosophical thought experiment in which You are manning a trolley that is out of control, and it is headed directly for five people who are working on the tracks ahead of you. You have the option, however, to pull a lever that will divert the trolley onto a different track where only one person is working on the tracks. A lot of people think that, like, oh, well, it's easy. Then you pull the lever. You kill one instead of five. But then you're intervening. Then you're choosing to kill that one person who would have been living if it weren't for you. So in in the episode you guys did on the Charlie problem, there's a scene where Michael makes Cheaty confront a real-life version of it. In this scene, Cheaty, Michael, and Eleanor are discussing the Charlie problem. Here's Cheaty. God, Michael, what did you do? I made the trolley problem real so we could see how the ethics would actually play out. There are five workers on this track and one over there. Here are the levers to switch the tracks. Make a choice. The thing is, I mean, ethically speaking... No time, dude! Make a decision! Well, it's tricky! I mean, on the one hand, if you ascribe to a purely utilitarian worldview... The train hits the five people, and, and Chidi actually gets covered in their blood. Yeah. But it, I promise it's so funny. I, think, I know, like... <laughs> it's about as funny as a man running over five people and then getting covered in their blood can be. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That was a nice <laughs> save for me. So, Chidi is this black character who appears on TV, and I feel like he's bucking those things that we typically get on there. We didn't want him to be a magical Negro who's just there to teach everybody about philosophy and then doesn't contribute anything else beyond that. Chidi was a professor of philosophy on Earth, and so when we want to get into sort of philosophical concepts and philosophical discussions, Chidi is often the origin of those discussions. He's certainly the most knowledgeable about philosophy. But Mike and the rest of us who work on the show wanted to make sure that Chidi's also a layered human being. We're still in a time when when so many black characters are are tropes. We wanted him to be somebody who feels real and who feels as whole as the other characters. Showing Chidi as a black man going through so much stress and anxiety and suffering from a lot of pressure 
and showing that he's vulnerable to that pressure and showing that that he breaks down very often, yeah. <laughs> very often <laughs> needs to be saved just as much as he's trying to save the other people. Something that, to me, always feels like a mini radical act is showing black male sensitivity and showing black male vulnerability and showing black male anxiety. Of course, in 2019, it shouldn't feel so radical, but it, it still does sometimes. That's such a great point, the anxiety piece of it. Mm-hmm. As someone who also gets anxiety and, and has it cause a stomach ache or two yeah. over time, <laughs> like it, it, is, it is nice to see. Yeah. Even using the word anxiety, I think, I don't know if we've ever used it directly with Chidi, but even using the word anxiety, it feels like anxiety is a word that isn't really reserved for black men a lot of the time. Yeah. It feels like we're, we're allowed to say stress. Mm-hmm. We're allowed to say we're angry, but very rarely are we saying like, I feel anxious, I feel anxiety, I feel nervous. Black men have a lot of reason to feel those things, and yet even using the word feels off limits sometimes. When I think about the things that go into how someone might see the world, you know, like obviously Chidi's study of ethics is deep, so deep he can educate beings in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. But Chidi is a black man. How do you think race factors into Chidi's sense of ethics at all? This is nothing we've ever discussed in the writer's room. Everything I'm going to say is solely my worldview. Sure. But I think that definitely for black people on Earth, a lot of the rules don't work for us. And a lot of the rules that were created by societies and by people in those societies were created in an effort to impede us and, and hurt us. So if you realize that all these sort of man-made rules are for other people to succeed and, and, and are, are not for you and your family and, and people who look like you, you maybe start to look outside of these sort of man-made constructs and these man-made rules toward a greater understanding of the world and to what the actual truth and facts are at the heart of humanity. I can sort of see Chidi saying all of these structures that society has created are man-made what if I can get at the essence of something that's not man-made? What if I can get yeah. at the essence of like true humanity as a way of sort of freeing himself from the structures that people have created to sort of hem him in? As I watch it, it's like, oh, you know, I can see where like it's easy for us to identify with like, man, a lot of these systems just don't seem like they're they're working for us. Mm-hmm. For example, even in the show, there's this like point system to see how you get into the good place. And it's it's interesting because they find out uh, in the most recent season that that point system actually isn't allowing anybody to get to the good place. It's mm-hmm. basically like unwinnable. Yeah. I was like, man, as a black person, I can really identify with unwinnable <laughs> systems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. After the break... I talked to Cord about imagining a place where race exists, but racism doesn't. A perfect joke is this all-powerful afterlife figure going down to Earth to see how it is and then coming back and realizing, like, everybody's really mad because I'm black, I guess. Welcome back. So I'm here with Cord Jefferson, one of the writers of The Good Place. So, Cord, a lot of the show takes place off of Earth. Mm -hmm. You know, folks are either in the good place, the bad place, or sometimes somewhere in between. Yeah, there's a medium place with only one resident. Yeah. And in all these locations that are kind of like not Earth, race and racism aren't actually that much of a factor. 
all the other characters who are not humans, like the judges and demons and other beings running the show, they're kind of somewhat confused by the concept of racism. Yeah. There's like this judge in the show who is expertly played by Maya Rudolph. Yeah. And I want to play just a quick clip. In this clip, the humans are trying to convince her to go to Earth to see just how hard it is to live there. Yeah, sure. I'll give it a shot. I'll go down there, see what you guys go through. And then, one way or another, this is going to end. Hey, do you guys know a good place where I can get Mexican food? Oh, Mexico, duh. (laughs) Oh. (sighs) Well, how long will she be gone? No way to tell. Uh, My guess is... Oh, brother. That was rough. Right? Sheesh. Earth is a mess, y'all. Woof. Also, I guess I'm black, and they do not like black ladies down there. Crap, y'all. This is bad. (laughs) I think I rewind that clip like four times when I saw it. A lot of the people in the afterlife wear skin suits. So Maya <laughs> saying, like, I'm a, I guess I'm a black lady down there. Like, she just threw on this skin suit to blend in, and she, she realizes that the skin suit that she chose is apparently, like, a bad one in a lot of places on Earth. They're looking at it from a very high-minded, at-a-distance level in, in that, like, race is pointless. It's just a thing that you guys concocted in order to divide each other and to, to oppress a group of people. To them... Racism is purely a human concern. Racism is something that humans created. They allowed life to flourish on Earth, and then they've just been assessing points ever since life started flourishing on Earth. Mm. It's sort of like if you had a, an ant farm and your ants started fighting each other, that's not your fault, right? You're no. just sort of somebody watching this ant farm play out in front of you. In that same episode, Sean who's sort of the head demon in the bad place, is battling with Michael about whether or not human beings can be good. Humans are terrible. Limp biscuit, slavery, the prosecution rests. <laughs> He's like, slavery, humans are, humans are bad people. Yeah. Race is the thing that human beings have created, and look at them, they're, they're so stupid for believing in this and thinking that this matters. For me, there's like a distance. I find it kind of refreshing in a way, because you're still getting to engage the critique, but I don't necessarily have to see like a black person like, shoved up against a car by a cop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's... The, <laughs> yeah. That's another thing is that, you know, it's a comedy show. There's jokes, and there needs to be a lot of levity. A lot of my favorite comedy is just pointing out absurdity. If there's anything that's really, really absurd and stupid, it is so many people's understanding and, and opinions about race and, and what race actually means. And so so a, a perfect joke is this woman, this all-powerful afterlife figure going down to Earth to see how it is, and then coming back and realizing, like, everybody's really mad because I'm black, I guess, which is, which is this thing that she had never considered before, and yet all these ants in the ant farm think is serious and important. So there's one other thing I, I, I've been dying to ask you about. In the first couple seasons, you know, they spend the majority of time in the neighborhood, this place that they think is the good place that they find out is the bad place. And in this neighborhood, there's so many little things that are designed to just drive them mad or, like, torture them. Mm -hmm. So you have these four characters. Three of them are people of color. It's, It's interesting that, like, racism wouldn't be one of the tools that is used to torture them. Yeah. I think that that maybe is a little too real for a comedy show. For for instance, one of the things that you may have noticed 
is that there are no children in the afterlife. Yes. We all know that children die, but I think if we were to show children in the afterlife on the show, it would it would be a little um, it would feel a little too real, a little yeah. too sad. Michael's skin suit, he's a demon, but his skin suit is an old white man. And so this old white man utilizing racism to hurt these people of color in the afterlife would probably just be, you know, Michael's evil, but he's not, you know, he's not evil, evil. Yeah. That is a bridge too far even for him. It isn't something we discuss, but you're right. I mean, it sounds like you would make an excellent bad place architect <laughs> if, if ever – if ever you get the opportunity to create a, a hellscape for for dead human beings, I would say you could be great at it. Stranger, I take that as a compliment. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> don't know that I should, but I do. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been this has been awesome. We've engaged all my nerdiness. Not too many people can do that. And if you ever want to engage your nerdiness again, I'd be happy to. I'm all for it. One one last thing. Yeah. It is sometimes odd to me that in a group of so many people of color that there aren't more white people jokes, man. Come on. <laughs> Just a couple every now and again. There was one in the there was one in the uh in the Janet's episode when Jason is in Janet's body and he goes, "Let's say stuff white people say." Billy Joel. I found it on Etsy. There was nowhere to park. Did you refill the Brita? Boy, <laughs> <laughs> that, boy, that. We'll try to get more this season. I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. <laughs> After the break, Brittany and I go way back to learn about one of the most feared legends of the wild, wild west. Welcome back. All right, so Brittany. Yes. Black History Month might be over for most people, sadly, but maybe happily. Mm. It, this was a year, rough, it was a rough one. It was this a rough year. one. Yeah. But for us, as you might know, mm. Black History Month never ends. Ever. So it is time for Peanut Butter History. George Washington Carver was the wizard of the soil. George Washington Carver was the most well-known African-American of his day. During his lifetime, Carver extracted more than 300 products from the peanut. There is one product that many mistakenly attribute to him. Peanut butter. So, peanut butter history is our, shall we say, homage to George Washington Carver, mm. who didn't invent peanut butter, by the way. Um, but he did think of hundreds of new uses for peanuts. Yes. Including, I don't know if you know this, peanut shaving cream. Really? That I, I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Learn something new every day. There you go. Uh, but yes, it is our homage to George Washington Carver and the thousands, maybe millions of black inventors, scientists, artists, and even more who still have not gotten their due. Mm. That includes a man I'm very excited to tell you about today. I don't even, I don't know who it is. This will give you a hint. Typically, when we're talking about the Wild West, we are talking about a bunch of grizzly old white dudes, right? Yeah. Like people uh, that, somebody that John Wayne would play in a yes, movie. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we don't often discuss the black cowboys, the black farmers. And they were there, too. Mm. And there's one black legend of the Old West I think really deserves a lot more attention. And his name 
is Bass Reeves. Wow, perfect name. That is a real good name. So good. I might take that one for my child. That's the one you can do the like last name, then first name thing. So mm-hmm. Reeves, mm-hmm. Bass Reeves. Ooh. He was one of the first black U.S. deputy marshals west of the Mississippi. Wow. Okay. So before we actually get into my favorite story about him, it's helpful to know a little bit more of the backstory of the legendary Bass Reeves. So Bass Reeves was born into slavery in Arkansas in 1838 Mm -hmm. or sometime around then because, you know, records, black people. Right. And when he was still pretty young— Bass ran away from the man who enslaved him after getting into a fist fight with him in the middle of a card game. Sounds like some of my family. Wait. So play cards. Yes. Got to fist fight. And then he dipped. And then he ran away. That was wow. too much. God. Can't be cheating at cards, man. Legend. You know? <laughs> that sounds like a plot line from that fake slavery show from Insecure. Uh, wait, from Insecure? Yeah, you remember that, oh, the fake yes. slavery what show? Oh, the name of that show? Oh, my I God. Do North or Do South or something like that. He's like, damn you, slavery. He's or like, I hate <laughs> slavery. <laughs> you let master swing low on your sweet cherry? I tried to warn you. I just can't work all day, then work all night. So after the fight, he fled to a part of the U.S. known at that time as Indian Territory. All the air quotes at that time. So basically, it was Oklahoma before it became a state. Okay. And it's also where the government forcibly relocated lots of Native American tribes at the time. Mm -hmm. And there, he learned to speak the languages of the tribes in the area. His Native American friends also taught him tracking skills and how to disguise himself while riding a horse. That is so cool. And those disguises were probably tough because Bass Reeves was hard to miss. He was a six-foot-tall black dude who had a seriously epic mustache. I'm actually very envious of this. So here's Bass Reeves. Woo! Look at his mustache. Oh, Can you describe it for me? So he's just got these this really these two beautiful, fluffy kind of handlebars. Mm-hmm. I kind of can't look away. He uh, looks very fertile. Okay. Well, I don't know that, that part, that's part of today's <laughs> story, but maybe that's the sequel. We could come back. Now, you know, they say that, that, that that's like a mental cue that you have when you see like a, like a lot of really? facial hair or something like that. Yeah. Learn something new every day. Peanut butter, shaving cream, facial hair, and, and fertility. There you go. Okay. So <laughs> at the time, though, uh, Indian Territory, as it was known, was kind of a haven for outlaws. And the U.S. government needed help rounding up felons in the area. Wow. Okay? So Reeves' tracking skills, along with the fact that he was a black man who was friendly with Native Americans, you know, white people weren't really trusted in that territory, if you know what I mean. So, you know, this all made Bass Reeves the perfect candidate. So in 1875, Reeves was appointed as a deputy U.S. marshal. And so he would patrol the Indian Territory, which was governed by Native Americans, and bring in outlaws who had committed crimes against anyone who wasn't a citizen of the territories. Was he, like, out in, like, Oklahoma arresting white fugitives? Yeah. That is too rich. That is too rich. (laughs) That is—that's wild. Yeah. They sent this black man out there to go arrest all these white people in Oklahoma? Yeah. Oh, my God. Now, you may have never heard of Bass Reeves— which it seems like you haven't. I have not. I've never heard of <laughs> But you probably heard of someone that Bass Reeves may have inspired. It's William Tell Overture. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
It's, it's Shut up. Is this the guy, like, A.O. Silver? Is this mm-hmm. that guy? Do you remember that guy's the name? Masked. <laughs> Masked Singer? No, no it's not no, T-Pain. No. no. <laughs> or Latoya Jackson. Um, a fiery horse with a speed of light. It's the guy the who's with... Um, oh, wait for it. Lone Ranger. Lone Ranger. Yes. Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger. They made a really bad movie about that. So, for those who don't know, The Lone Ranger is a story of a Texas Ranger turned Wild West hero who famously wears this, like, black mask over his eyes. Yeah. So he hunts down bad guys with the help of his Native American friend, Tonto. Friend or servant. Mm. Talk about it. Mm. So the character originated on a radio program in the 1930s and was later adapted into a popular TV show Mm -hmm. and then movies, you know, the aforementioned bad movies. Mm -hmm. So in every one of these stories, a white man has played the Lone Ranger, right? Yeah. Continuing this, this tired, whitewashed history of the old... Wild West. Yeah. But today, today, I'm going to tell you an epic story about a black Wild West legend, Bass Reeves, and I want you to picture him as someone who I know you are fond of, Brian Tyree Henry. Does that, does that do it for you? Yes! <laughs> I love him. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. I'm, I'm like, I'm getting the mental picture. So like any legendary figure, there are a ton of stories about him that show his grit and his character. Mm-hmm. But this story... Is my favorite. And it'll help you understand the comparisons to the Lone Ranger. So are you ready? Yeah, shit. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so we got four minutes. Okay. Okay, for you to tell this story. And there's going to be some music in the background. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? The music is going to edge you along towards okay. your goal. So hopefully. Support me. We'll see. It's gonna music is gonna hold your feet to the fire. Only you can determine whether or not you survive. So, four <laughs> minutes on the clock. I'm ready Stakes to got higher. Story. Here. <laughs> All right, let's go. Okay, so since Bass Reeves was born into slavery, he never got a formal education. I was trying to hold us back, which meant he was never taught how to read. Oh. And since he never learned how to read, he came up with all sorts of tricks for helping him remember the arrest warrants he was given. Okay, so he tried to memorize the symbols Whoa. of the written name, yeah, and how, with how it sounded as it was spoken. And sometimes he would travel hundreds of miles in Indian territory to find someone who could help him read an arrest warrant and write a response. Wow. But still, he claims he never arrested the wrong man. I believe him. So Bass made up for his illiteracy with his quick wit and fast draw. Wow. He carried two pistols, but his favorite weapon was a rifle. I knew it. He was one of the best marksmen in all of Indian territory. And he was often banned from turkey shooting contests in the area because he was just too damn Wait, good. Wait, what? Turkey shooting contests. Were the turkeys you know? moving or were they standing? No, nah, I think they were moving. Okay. So don't get me wrong. He didn't just shoot anyone. Just it, nobody off the street. He preferred to just sneak up on outlaws. So he'd use all sorts of tricks, including disguises. Sometimes he'd dress up as a cowboy, a farmer, a fellow outlaw, all to get information. A fellow outlaw? Yes. And he was known for being able to capture outlaws that others couldn't. At one point, he brought in 17 men at one time. I don't even know how you do that. His nickname was the Invincible Marshal. And so... All this was pretty impressive because Indian territory was a dangerous place to be as a marshal. People don't like the feds. So a lot of marshals were killed in the line of duty at that time. And one day, Reeves was tasked with finding two Texan men who had committed murders. One was a big, one was a big guy, one was a small guy. Okay. Okay, you follow? Laurel Hardy. Yes. So he came across them on the road and immediately recognized them and greeted them with, you know, just a casual morning, gentlemen. 
Morning, gentlemen. What's up? So one of them replied, ain't you Bass Reeves? And he said, no. He was like, I, I wasn't. But they didn't believe him. So they pulled out their guns on him. Okay? So they held him by gunpoint and oh told God. him to ride with them oh until God. they could find someone who could tell them whether he was Bass oh, Reeves. Oh, no. So it's a, it seems like it's a wrap. So they rode for a while but couldn't find folks to confirm his identity. So they told Reeves to get off the horse. Now, it's clear it's over, right? They're about, to, they're about to shoot him. Lights out. Oh, my God. So they all get off their horses, and one of the men asks Reeves if he has any last words. So Bass Reeves says he has a letter from his wife that he'd like to have read out loud to him since, of course, he can't read. I'm breathless. Just a humble black man. So the two men agreed, and Reeves reached for the letter in his bag. But as soon as they took their eyes off him, he grabbed the big man's neck with one hand, took the man's gun with the other, and said, son of a bitch, now you're under arrest. That's how Holy I talk to most people. Shit. So the smaller man was so taken aback, he dropped his gun. So Bass Reeves had turned the tables and successfully captured both of them, and he took them to prison. By the time he retired, after more than 30 years of service, he claims he had arrested more than 3,000 fugitives. In all that time, he says he only killed 14 men, That's which, according bad. to him, were all out of self-defense. Can you blame the guy? I, wow. So a lot of the fugitives he caught were sent to the Detroit House of Corrections in Michigan. And Detroit, is, interestingly enough, is where the first Lone Ranger radio program began in 1933. Whoa. Is it clicking for you? Okay, so one of Reeves' biographers, Art T. Burton suggests this theory. He says the outlaws at the Detroit prison could have spread stories about Bass and those legends got out to the larger public, eventually turning into the story of the Lone Ranger, a character known for his clever disguises, quick wit, and close friendship with Native Americans, just like Bass Reeves. Wow. So we don't know for sure if oh Bass is the inspiration for the Lone Ranger, but either way, Bass is a legend we should remember forever. Boom! You did go slightly over time because you were because you added some flourish. I bet you know. But I have to say, the story was. I mean, what? Yeah. I mean, just the level of cunning, unbelievable. Yeah, they were sleeping on him. He was. He was like, "You can't. Don't. Don't try to play me just because you think I don't have it. I have skills for days. This is incredible. I wish that there were more stories about this guy that are out there. Even like a film with Brian Tyree Henry." <laughs> It seems like there could be a market for that. Maybe. Oh, it would be that would be such a good movie. Like that would be so good. Can you imagine though? Like directed by Jordan Peele, like a nice, like a nice western. Yeah, just you know, some some gritty. Sounds like it would be great. Wow. So I would say Bass Reeves deserves recognition. Would you say that? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so Bass Reeves, welcome to the, the Peanut, Peanut Butter, Butter Pantheon. Pantheon. By the way, I'd like to add this story about the letter and a bunch of other amazing legends about Bass Reeves are from this really, really brilliant biography called Black Gun, Silver Star. The Life and Legend of Frontier Marshal Bass Reeves by Art T. Burton. That's also a really good name. Yeah, it's a good name. So you should check it out. And you cannot miss the cover. The cover <laughs> is a photo of him with that stash. The Nod is produced by me, Eric Eddings, with Brittany Luce and Kate Parkinson Morgan. Our senior producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. We are edited by Emmanuel Berry. 
Additional editorial support from Jorge Jess. The show is mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. Additional music in the show by Cedric Wilson, Haley Shaw, Talkstar, and James Garden. You should just talk like Jackson, Maine. Just like Rumble. My name is like that. That's Reeves, good. Bass Reeves. That's good. That really is good. <laughs>